0: Well welcome to today's Read Aloud. It's our first official Read Aloud. We have Spanish Read Aloud on Tuesday. We're gonna have American Sign Language next Tuesday. But this is our first regular Read Aloud for spring quarter. And we have invited Susan Hansen from um, the uh, OSU lear- uh, Veterans Learning Community. Mm-hmm. Um, who is, she's the director of it. And I'm going to turn this immediately over to her to introduce our guest today who will be reading um, from Experiences at War. Why don't yeah. you take over, please? Okay. Um, so I'm Susan Hansen. I gave you the brochure, so I wouldn't have to spend too much time telling you about the program. Um, these four students were in last quarter's uh, literature class in comparative studies. Um, it was CompState's 308, and it is literature on the experiences of war. Um, they're all veterans, um, I'll let them tell you as much or as little as they'd like to about themselves. Is any, anyone a veteran? Any of you? No? Okay, so um, the program actually was fairly new. We've only had classes. This is our second year of classes. Um, and I think it uh, they can speak to a, you know, sort of the importance to them to have a class that... Uh, is exclusively veteran and military students and to sort of engage with materials that, um, that have particular resonance with their own lives. So these are all texts that we worked with last quarter and uh, some selected the passages that were important. Some took my advice and I think probably, um, uh, and would have objected if indeed It wasn't agreeable material. So um, I thought that it might be um, appropriate, I think, to start with um, an excerpt from Tim Uh, O'Brien. This is a a memoir, a Vietnam War memoir. And um, Jay McCoy is going to read from the chapter, um, it's chapter 16. Uh, It's called um, Wise Endurance, and it is the chapter where the memorist sort of reflects on um, questions, ideas uh, about courage and bravery. So, Jay McCoy, you want to tell them something about yourself briefly?
1: Uh, I guess, like, my statistics would be that I was in the Army. I was active duty for eight years and uh, I did three tours overseas, twice to Baghdad and once to southeastern Afghanistan. Uh, whatever it is, soldiering in war is something that makes a fellow think about courage. It makes a man wonder what it is and if he has it. Some say earnest in a way was obsessed by the need to to show bravery in battle. It started, they say, somewhere in World War I and ended when he passed his final test in Idaho. If the man was obsessed with the notion of courage, that was a fault. But reading Hemingway's war journalism and his war stories, you get the sense that he was simply concerned about bravery, hence about cowardice, and that seems a virtue, a sublime and profound concern. That few men have. For courage, according to Plato, is one of the four parts of virtue. It is there with temperance, justice, and wisdom, and all parts are necessary to make the sublime human being. In fact, Plato says men without courage are men without temperance, justice, or wisdom. Just as without wisdom, men are not truly courageous. Men must know. What they do is courageous, they must know it is right, and that kind of knowledge is wisdom and nothing else. Which is why I know few brave men, either they are stupid and do not know what is right, or they know what is right and cannot bring themselves to do it, or they know what is right and do it, but do not feel or understand the fear that must be overcome, it takes a special man. Courage is more than the charge. More than dying or suffering the loss of a love in synth. more than dying or suffering the loss of a love in silence would be counted. It is temperament and more wisdom. Was the cow standing immobile and passive more courageous than the Vietnamese boys who ran like rabbits from Alpha Company's barrage? Hardly. Cows are very stupid. Most soldiers in Alpha Company did not think about human courage. They were malingerers in Alpha Men who cared little about bravery. bravery. Uh, shit, man, the trick of get, being in NAM is getting out of NAM. And I don't mean getting out in a plastic body bag. I mean getting out alive, so my girl can grab me, so I'll know it. The malingers manufactured some of the best, most persuasive ailments ever, some good enough to fool a skeptical high school nurse. When we walked through the sultry vile, the sultry vils, in sluggish, solemn land called Pinkville, the massive men in Alpha Company talked little about Diner. To talk about it was bad luck, the ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy. Death was taboo. The word for getting killed was wasted. When you, when you hit a bouncing Betty and it blows you to bits, you get wasted. Fear was taboo. It could be mentioned, of course, but it had to be accompanied with a shrug and a grin and an obvious resignation. All this took the meaning out of courage. We could not gaze straight at fear and die. Not at least. While out in the field, and so there was no way to face the question. You don't talk about being a hero with a star pinned on your shirt and feeling all puffed up. The soldier couldn't understand when when I asked him about the day he ran from his foxhole through enemy fire to wrap useless cloth around a dying soldier's chest. I reacted, I guess. I just did it. Did it seem the right thing to do? No, the dog said. Not right, not wrong either. Did you think you might be shot? Yes, I guess I did. Maybe not. When someone hollers for the medic, if you're a medic, you run toward the shop. That's it, I guess. But isn't there a feeling you might die? Doc had his legs crossed and was leaning over a can of sea rashes He seemed intent on them. No, I won't die over here, he laughed. Maybe I'll never die. I just wondered why I didn't feel anything hit me. Something should have hit me. There was so much firing. I sort of ran over there, waiting for a kind of blast or punch in my back. My back always feels most exposed. Before the war, my favorite heroes had been make-believe men. Alan Ladd of Shane, Captain Weir, Humphrey Bogart as the proprietor of Cafe de American, Frederick Henry. Especially Frederick Henry, Henry was able to leave war, being good and brave enough at it, for real love. And although he missed the men of war, he did not miss the fear of killing. And Henry, like all my heroes, was not obsessed by courage. He knew it was only one part of virtue, that love and justice were other parts. To a man, my heroes, before going to Vietnam, were hard and realistic. To a man, they were removed from other men, able to climb above and gaze down at other Bogey in his office, looking down at reload wheels and travelers, Veer elevated. The star, searching justice, shame, loving the boy, detesting violence, looking down and saying goodbye aboard the stocky horse. To a man, my heroes were wise. Perhaps Veer was an exception, but when he allowed Billy Budd to die, he was at least seeking justice, tormented by the need, by a need for wisdom, even omniscience. But certainly Shane and Bogart and Henry had learned much and knew much, having gone through their special agonies. And each was courageous. Bogey, how could a man leave Ingrid Bergman, send her away, even for the most noble of causes? Shane facing his villain, Veer sending a stuttering blonde, purely innocent youth to the gallows, and especially Frederick Henry talking with his talking with his love, Catherine Bartley. You're brave. No, she said. But I would like to be. I'm not, I said. I know where I stand. I've been out long enough to know. I'm like a ball player that hits 230 and knows he's no better. What is a ball player that bats 230? It's awfully impressive. It's not. It means a mediocre hitter in baseball. But still, I'm a hitter. But still a hitter, she probably means. I guess we're both conceited, I said, but you're, but you are brave. Henry and the rest of my heroes had been out long enough to know, experience them was. Batting 230, realistic, able to speak the truth, conceited, never. And most striking, strikingly, each of these heroes thought about courage, cared about being brave, and at least enough to talk about it and wonder, to others about it. But here, out of the villages of my and my cave, where the question of courage is critical. No, no one except Captain Johansen seemed to care. Not the maligners, certainly. Not Arizona, the kid who was shot in the chest in his private charge. Not the doc. So when the time came in my life, or when the time in my life came to replace fictional heroes with real ones, the candid- candidates were sparse. And it was to be the captain, remember? Looking at him, only a shadow rolled in a poncho, lying on his side asleep. I wondered what it was about him that made him a real hero. He was blonde, a hero somehow or blonde, in the ideal. He had driven racing automobiles as a civilian, and had a red slab of scarred flesh as his prize. He had met him as one for killing the Viet Cong, a silver star. He was like Beard Bogey, Shane, and Frederick Henry, companionless among herds of other men, men lesser than he, but still sad and wronged that he was not perfect. At least so it appeared. Perhaps other men, some of the troopers he had led, who were not so brave, died when he, had, when he did not, and should have, by a hero's standard. Like my fictional pre-war heroes, Captain Johansson's courage was a model and just as I could never match Alan Howland's prowess nor Captain Beer's intensity of conviction nor Robert Jordan's resolution to confront his own certain death, in Jordan's place I would have climbed back on my horse, had the leg, bad leg and all, and galloped away till I bled to death in the saddle. I could not match my captain, but still I found a living hero, and it was good to learn that human beings sometimes embody battle, that they do not always dissolve at the end of, the, of a book or movie reel. I thought about courage off and on for the rest of my tour in Vietnam. When I compared subsequent company commanders to Johansson, it was clear that he alone carried enough, cared enough about being brave to think about it and try to, try to do it. Captain Smith admitted that he was a coward using just that word. Captain Forsythe strutted and pretended, but he failed. On the outside, things did not change much after Captain Johansson. We lost about the same number of men. We fought about the same number of battles, always small little skirmishes. But losing him was like the Trojans losing Hector. He gave some amount of reason to fight. Certainly there were never any political reasons. The war, like Hector's own war, was silly and stupid. Troy was besieged for the sake of a pretty woman, and Helen, for God's sake, was a woman. Most of the grubby war Trojans... Could never have. Vietnam was under siege in pursuit of a pretty, tantalizing, promiscuous, particularly American, brand of government style, and most of Albuquerque would have preferred a likable war to self-determination. So Captain Johansson helped him mitigate and melt the, the silliness, showing the grace and poise of a man. The grace and poise a man can have under the worst circumstances. The wrong war with clung them. Even forgetting the captain, looking at myself, and the days that I writhed insensible under bullets, and other days when I did okay, somehow shooting back, or talking coherently into the radio, or simply watching without embarrassment how the fighting went, some of the futility and stupidity disappeared. The idea is manliness, crudely idealized. You liken dead friends to the pure of the eternal dead soldier. You liken living friends to the massive dusty troops who have swarmed the world forever. And you try to find a hero. It's more difficult, however, to think of yourself in those ways. As the eternal Hector dying gallantly, it is impossible. That's the problem. Knowing yourself, you can't make it real for yourself. It's sad when you learn you're not much of a Thank
0: you. can glad to. Josh, will you go next? Um, Josh Green is going to read an excerpt from um, *All Quiet on the Western Front*, which is sort of widely considered, you know, the best of war stories. It's a novel. Uh, whereas the first one was uh, a memoir based on personal experience. This, too, is is based on the author's personal <coughs> experience, but it is uh, written as fiction.
2: Right, and also from the other guy's perspective. Um, my name is Josh, uh, Josh Green, and I was uh, uh, infantryman in the U.S. Army. I uh, went to Iraq, uh, Fallujah, in in 06, 07. and Kelsu uh, in 06-07. And as far as some context on the piece I'm going to read. It's, it's really short, it's only three pages. Um, uh, the main character just, uh, he's in World War I, and uh, he just killed the man in hand-to-hand combat and is stuck in a uh, like a, a shell hole with him for about a day and a half, and this is him kind of um, dealing with the realization of uh, the man he killed is indeed a man. The silence spreads. I talk and must talk. So I speak to him and I say to him, Comrade, I did not want to kill you. If you jumped in here again, I would not do it, if you would be sensible too. But you were only an idea to me before, an abstraction that lived in my mind and called forth its appropriate response. It was that abstraction I stabbed. But now, for the first time, I see you are a man like me. I thought of your hand grenades, of your bayonet, of your rifle. Now I see your wife and your face and our fellowship. Forgive me, comrade. We always see it too late. Why do, they never, why do they never tell us that you are poor devils like us, that your mothers are just as anxious as ours, and that we have the same fear of death, and the same dying, and the same agony? Forgive me, comrade. How could you be my enemy? If we threw away these rifles and this uniform, you could be my brother, just like Kat and Albert. Take 20 years of my life, comrade. And stand up. Take more, for I do not know what I can even attempt to do with it now. It is quiet. The front is still, except for the crackle of rifle fire. The bullets rain over. They are not fired haphazard, but shrewdly aimed from all sides. I cannot get out. I will write to your wife. I say hastily to the dead man. I will write to her. She must hear it from me. I will tell her everything I have told you. She she shall not suffer. I will help her, and your parents too, and your child. His tunic is half open. The pocketbook is easy to find, but I hesitate to open it. It is in the book with... It is in the book... It is, in it is the book with his name. So long as I do not know his name, perhaps I may still forget him. Time will obliterate it, this picture. But his name is a nail that will be hammered into me and never come out again. It has the power to recall this forever. It will always come back and stand before me. Irresolutely, I take the wallet in my hand. It slips out of my hand and falls open. Some pictures and letters drop out. I gather them up and want to put them back again. But the strain I am under, the uncertainty, the hunger, the danger, these hours with the dead man have made me desperate. I want to hasten the relief, to, inset- to intensify and to end the torture, as one strikes an un- uh, unendurably painful hand against the trunk of a tree, regardless of everything. There are portraits of a woman and a little girl, small amateur photographs taken against an ivy-clad wall. Uh, along, Along with them are letters. I take them out and I try to read them. Most of it I do not understand. It is hard to decipher and I scarcely know any French, but each word I translate pierces me like a shot in the chest, like a stab in the chest. My brain is taxed beyond endurance, but I realize this much that I will never dare to write these people as I intended. Impossible. I look at the portraits once more, and they are clearly not rich people. I might send them money anonymously if I earn anything later on. I seize upon that. It is at least something to hold on to. This dead man is bound up with my life. Therefore, I must do everything, promise everything, in order to save myself. I swear blindly that I mean to live only for his sake and his family. With wet lips, I try to placate him. And deep down in me lies the hope that I may b- buy myself off in this way and perhaps even get out of this. It is a little stratagem. If only I am allowed to escape, then I will see it, or see to it. So I open the book and I read slowly Gerard Duval, compositor. With a dead man's pencil, I write the address on an envelope, then swiftly thrust everything back into his tunic. I have killed the printer, Gerard Duval. I must be a printer, I think confusedly. Be a printer. Printer.
0: Thank you. The um, I think we'll go next with uh, war. This is James Cooper. Um, this particular piece is a short story by Luigi Perrandello who is known primarily as a dramatist, uh, but this. Uh, story uh, is in part, uh, I mean it's a work of fiction, but it's based or inspired by his own experiences, uh, those of his son and his wife.
3: <coughs> My name is James Cooper. Uh, I served in the United States Air Force, seven years active duty. I was did three tours in Iraq, uh, Baghdad, Fallujah, and then also the stationed outside of Iraq in Azraq, Jordan, which is west border, and then did convoys into uh, the Iraq territories. Um, I'll be reading more. The passengers who had left Rome by night express had had to stop until dawn at the small station of Fabrino in order to continue their journey by small, old-fashioned local joining Main line was Salona. At dawn, in a stuffy and smoky second-class carriage, in which five people had already spent the night, a bulky woman in deep mourning was hoisted in, almost like a shapeless bundle. Behind her, huffing and moaning, followed her husband, a tiny man, thin and weakly, his face death-white, his eyes small and bright and looking shy and easy. Having at last taken a seat, he politely thanked the passengers who had helped his wife and who made room for her. Then he turned around to the woman, trying to pull down the collar of her coat, and politely inquired, Are you all right, dear? The wife insisted, instead of answering, pulled up her collar again to her eyes so as to hide her face. Nasty world, muttered the husband with a sad smile. And he felt his duty to explain to his traveling companions that the poor woman was to be pitied, for the war was taking away from her her only son, a boy of 20 to whom both had devoted their entire life, even breaking up their home in Salmona to follow him to Rome, where he had to go, to go as a student, then allowing him to volunteer for war, with an assurance, however. At least for six months He would not be sent to the front And now all of a sudden Receiving a wire saying that he was due To leave in three days time And asking them to go and see him off The woman under a big coat Was twisting and wriggling At times growling like a wild animal Feeling certain that all those Explanations would not have aroused Even a shadow of sympathy From those people who most likely Were in the same plight as herself One of them who had been listening with particular attention, said, "'You should thank God that your son is only leaving now for the front. Mine has been sent there the first day of the war, and he has already come back twice, wounded, and been sent back again to the front. What about me? I have two sons and three nephews at the front,' said another passenger. "'Maybe, but in our case, it is our only son,' ventured the husband." What is the difference? What difference can it make? You may spoil your only son with excessive attention, but you cannot love him more than what you would all the other children, if you had any. Paternal love is not like bread that can be broken into pieces and split amongst the children in equal shares. A father gives all of his love to each one of his children without discrimination, whether it be one or ten. And if I am suffering now for my two sons, I am not suffering half "'for each of them but double.' "'True, true,' sighed the embarrassed husband. "'But suppose, of course we all hope it will never be your case, "'a father has two sons at the front, and he loses one of them. "'There is still one left to console him. "'While, yes,' answered the other, getting cross. "'a son left to console him, but also a son left for whom he must survive.' While in the case of the father of this only son, if the son dies, the father can die too and put to end his distress. Which of the two positions is worse? Don't you see how my case would be worse than yours? Nonsense, interrupted another traveler, a fat, red-faced red-faced man with bloodshot eyes of the palest gray. He was pant- panting from his bulging eyes and seemed to sp- inner void violence of an uncontrolled fertility which his weakened body could hardly contain. nonsense he repeated, trying to cover his mouth with his hand as to hide the two missing front teeth. Nonsense, do we give life to our children for only our own benefit? The other travelers stared at him in distress. The one who had had his son at the front since the first day, of the war side, you were right. Our children do not belong to us, they belong to the country. Bosh, retorted the fat traveler. Do we think of the country when we give our life to our children? Our sons are born because, well, because they must be born. And when they come to life, they take our our own life with them. This is the truth. We belong to them, but they never belong to us. And when they reach 20, they are exactly what they were at their age, what we were at their age. We too had a father and a mother, but there were so many other things as well. Girls, cigarettes, illusions, new ties, and the country, of course, whose call we would have answered when we were 20, even if father and mother had said no. Now at our age, the love of our country is still great, of course, but stronger than it is the love for our children. Is there any one of us here who wouldn't gladly take his... Son's place at the front, if you could. There was silence all around, everybody nodding as to approve. Why then, continued the fat man, shouldn't we consider the feelings of our children when they are twenty? Isn't it natural that at their age they should consider the love for their country? I'm speaking of decent boys, of course. Even greater than the love for us, isn't it natural that it should be so? as after they must look upon us as upon old boys who cannot move anymore and must stay at home if a country exists if a country is as a, is a natural necessity like bread of which each of us must eat in order not to die of hunger somebody must go to defend it and our sons go when they are 20 and when they don't want tears because if they die they die inflamed and happy i'm speaking of course of decent boys Now, if one dies young and happy without having the ugly side of life, the boredom of it, the pettiness, the bitterness, the disillusion, what more can we ask for him? Everyone should stop crying. Everyone should laugh, as I do, or at least thank God, as I do, because my son, before dying, sent me a message saying that he was dying satisfied at having ended his life in the best way he could have wished. That is why, as you see, I do not even wear more. He shook his light, fawn coat so as to show it. His livid lip over his missing teeth was trembling, his eyes watering, watery and motionless. And soon after, he ended with a shrill laugh, which might have been a sob. Quite so, quite so, agreed the others. The woman who bundled in the corner of her coat had been sitting and listening, had for the last three months tried to find in her words of her husband and friends something to console her in her deep sorrow, something that might show her how a mother should resign herself to send her son not even to death, but to a probable danger of life. Yet not a word had she found amongst the many which had been said, and her grief had been greater in seeing that nobody, as she thought, could share her feelings. But now in the words of a traveler amazed and almost stunned her, she suddenly realized that, there, that it wasn't the others who were wrong and who could not understand her, but herself who could not rise up to the same height of those fathers and mothers willing to resign themselves without crying, not only to the departure of their sons, but even to their death. She lifted her head. She bent over from her corner, trying to listen with great attention to the details which the fat man was giving to his companions about the way his son had fallen as a hero for his king and his country, happy and without regrets. It seemed to her that she had stumbled into a world she had never dreamed of, a world so far unknown to her, as she was so pleased to hear everyone joining in congratulating the brave father who could so socially speak for his child's death. Then suddenly, just as if she had heard nothing of what had been said, and almost as if waking up from a dream, she turned to the old man and asked him, Then is your son really dead? Everybody stared at her. The old man, too, turned around to look at her, fixing his great, bulging, horribly watery, light gray eyes deep in her face. For some little time, he tried to answer, but words failed him. He looked and looked at her, Almost as if only then, at that silly, encouraging question, he had suddenly realized, at last, that his son was really dead. Gone forever. Forever. His face contracted, became horribly distorted. Then he snatched in haste a handkerchief from his pocket, and to the amazement of everyone, broke into a harrowing heart-rending uncontrollable
0: sobs. Thank you. Um, Our last piece is going to come from um, a book entitled The Warriors uh, by J. Glenn Gray, uh, who was a philosophy professor who had been a soldier in World War II and afterwards wrote about his perspective of war, of his own experiences. He referred to his his own memoirs, the notes he had uh, taken. Uh, the passage that David uh, is going to read from is from a chapter entitled The Enduring Appeals of Battle. And Gray identifies a number of appeals. Uh, One I would mention first because I think it's one that in many ways uh, civilians share in this sort of digital age um, with uh, soldiers themselves, and it's this appeal of seeing, right? This idea that we can kind of observe, or particularly um, um, most recently, I'd say, in most of our experiences, um, the extent to which we found ourselves all glued to the television during the shock and awe stage of the invasion of Iraq, and that. Just you know, regardless of whether or not we supported that action or or didn't, that there's something about the seeing, you know, to see what happens, and seeing is becomes this thing that enables us to kind of distance ourselves somewhat from from what is happening. Um, But he also goes on to identify what certainly is uh, resonant for. Um, these veterans and others is the importance of camaraderie and that that is for for them by and large the thing that makes the experiences that they had meaningful in ways that um, are difficult to communicate to people who don't share that sense of uh, closeness under the most extraordinary circumstances.
4: to be investigated. The term comradeship covers a large number of relationships, from the most personal to the anonymous and general. And here I will consider only some essential of military comradeship. What calls it into being in battle? What strengthens or weakens it? What is its essential attraction? The feeling of belonging together, that men in battle often find a cementing force, needs needs first to be awakened by an external reason for fighting but the feeling is by no means dependent on this reason. The cause that calls comradeship into being may be the defense of one's country, the propagation of one one true religious faith, or the passionate political ideology. It may be the maintenance of honor or the recovery of a Helen of Troy. So long as there is a cause, the hope for objective may be relatively unimportant in itself. When through military reserves or the fatiguing and often horrible experiences of combat, the only original purpose becomes obscured, the fighter is often sustained solely by determination not to let down his comrades. Numberless soldiers have died, more or less willingly, not for country or honor or religious faith or for any other abstract good, but because they realize that by feeling their post and rescuing themselves, by fleeing their post and rescuing themselves, they would expose their companions to a greater danger. Such loyalty to the group is the essence of fighting morale. The commander who can preserve and strengthen it knows that all other psychological or physical factors are little in comparison. The feeling of loyalty is clear is the result, and not the cause, of comradeship. Comrades are loyal to each other spontaneously and without any need for reasons. Men may learn to be loyal out of fear or from rational conviction. Loyal even to those they dislike. But such loyalty is rarely reliable with great masses of men, unless it has some cement and spontaneous liking and the feeling of belonging. Though comradeship is dependent on being together physically in time and space, it is not a hurting animal instinct. Little can be learned, I am convinced, from attempting to compare animal and human forms of association. In extreme danger and need, there is undeniably a minimal satisfaction in having others of your own species in your vicinity. The proverb that misery loves company is not without basis, particularly in situations where defense and aggression are involved, but it is equally true that men can live in the same room and share the same suffering without any sense of belonging together. They can live past each other and be irresponsible toward each other, even when their welfare is clearly dependent on cooperation. What then are the important components of comradeship if physically presence is only a minimal condition? The one that occurs immediately is organization for a common goal. Even a very loose type of organization can induce many people to moderate their self-assertiveness and accommodate themselves to a direction of superpersonal will. Everyone is aware of the vast differences between a number of men as a chance collection of individuals and the same number as an organized group or community. A community has purpose and plan, and there is in us an almost instinctive recognition of the connection between unity and strength. Those who stand in disorganized masses against smaller groups of the organized are always aware of the tremendous odds against them. The sight of huge crowds of prisoners of war being herded toward collection centers by a few guards with rifles slung over their backs is one filled with pathos. It is not the absence of weapons that makes these prisoners helpless before their guards. It is the absence of a common will, the failing assurance that others will act in concert with you against the conquerors. But organization is of many kinds, and the military kind, is special in aiming at common and concrete goals. The organization of a civilian community, a city for example, is not without goals, but they are rarely concrete, and many members are hardly aware of their existence. If a civilian community has goals with more reality and power to endure, than military goals, as I believe it does, its goals are, nevertheless, unable to generate the degree of loyalty that a military organization can. In war, it is a commonplace of command that the goals of the fighting forces need to be clear and to be known. Naturally, the overall goal is to win the war and then go home, but in any given action, the goal is to overcome the attacking enemy, or if you are an attacker, win the stated objective. Any fighting unit must have a limited and specific objective, and the more defined and bounded it is, the greater the willingness, as a rule, on the part of the soldiers to abandon their natural desire for self-preservation. Officers soon learn to dread hazy and ill-defined orders from above. If the goal is physical, a piece of earth to take or defend, a machine gun nest to destroy, a strong point to annihilate, the officers are much more likely to invoke the sense of comradeship they realize that comradeship at first develops through consciousness of an obstacle to overcome through common effort. A fighting meeting with morale is one in which many are of like mind and determination, unconsciously agreed on the suppression of the individual desire and the interest of the shared purpose. Organization for a common and concrete goal in peacetime. Organizations do not evoke anything like the degree of comradeship commonly known in war. Evidently the presence of danger is distinctive and important. Men then are organized for a goal whose realizations invoke the real possibility of death or injury. How does danger break down the barriers of the self and give man an experience of community? The answer to this question is the key to one of the oldest, most enduring, excitements of battle. Danger provides a certain spice to experience. This is common knowledge. It quickens the pulse and makes us more aware of being alive by calling attention to our physical selves. The thrill of the chase and hunting, of riding a horse very fast, or driving an automobile recklessly is of this sort. But the excitement created in us by such activities has little communal existence or significance. Its origins appear to be sexual, if we understand sex in the wide sense given to it by Freud. The increased fatality we feel where danger is incidental is due to the awareness of mastery over the environment. It is an individualist, not a communal drive. The excitement and thrill of battle, on the other hand, are of a different sort, for their danger is central and not incidental. There is little to play, element, little of the play element about combat. However much there may have been training for it, instead for more soldiers there is a hovering, inescapable sense of irreversibility. This is for keeps, as soldier slang is likely to put it. This profound earnestness is by no means devoid of lightheartedness, as seen in teasing and horseplay. But men are conscious that they are on a one-way street, so to speak. And what they do or fail to do can be of great consequence. Those who enter into battle is distinguished from those who only hover on its fringes, do not fight as duelists fight. Almost automatically, they fight as a unit, a group. Training can help a great deal in bringing this about more quickly and easily in an early stage, but training can only help to make actual what is inherent. As any commander knows, an hour or two of combat can do more to weld the unit together than can months of intensive training. Many veterans who are honest with themselves will admit, I believe, that the experience of communal effort in battle, even under the altered conditions of modern war, has been a high point in their lives. Despite the horror, the weariness, and the grime, and the hatred, participation with others in the chances of battle had its unforgettable side, which they would not want to have missed. For anyone who has not experienced it himself, the feeling is hard to comprehend, and for the participant, hard to explain to anyone else. Probably the feeling of liberation is nearly basic. It is the feeling that explains the curious combination of earnestness and lightheartedness so often noted in men in battle. Many of us can experience freedom as a thrilling reality, something both serious and joyous, only when we are acting in unison with others for a concrete goal. It costs something absolute for its attainment. Individual freedom to do what we will with our lives and our talents, the freedom of self-determination, appears to us most of the time as frivolous or burdensome. Such freedom is as empty and alone, feeling undirected, and insignificant. Only comparatively few of us know how to make this individual freedom productive and joyous. But communal freedom can pervade nearly everyone and carry everything before it. This elemental fact about freedom the opponents of democracy have learned well, and it constitutes for them a large initial advantage. The light hardness that communal participation brings has little of the sensuous or merely pleasant about it, just as the earnestness has little of the calculating or rational. Both derive instead from a consciousness of power that is super-individual, we feel earnest and gay at such moments because we are liberated from our individual impotence and are drunk with the power that union with our fellows brings. In moments like these, many have a vague awareness of how isolated and separate their lives have hitherto been and how much they have missed by living in the narrow circle of a family or a few friends. With the boundaries of self expanded, they sense a the kinship never before known. Their I passes insensibly into a weed. My becomes our, and individual fate loses its central importance. At its height, this sense of comradeship is an ecstasy not unlike aesthetic ecstasy previously described. Though occasioned by different forces, in most of us there is a genuine longing for community with our human species, and at the same time an awkwardness and helplessness about finding the way to achieve it. Some extreme experience, mortal danger, or the threat of destruction is necessary to bring us fully together, with our comrades or with nature. This is a great pity, for there are surely alternative ways, more creative and less dreadful, if men would only seek them out. Until now, word has appealed because we discover some of the mysteries of the communal joy and its forbidden depths, comradeship reaches at its peak of battle. The secret of Comradeship has not been exhausted, however, in the feeling of freedom and power instilled in us by communal effort in combat. There's something more and equally important. The sense of power and liberation that comes over men at such a moment stems from a source beyond the union of men. I believe it is nothing less than the assurance of immortality that makes self-sacrifice at these moments so relatively easy. Men are true comrades only when each is ready to give up his life for the other. Without reflection and without the thought of personal loss, Who can doubt that every war, the two world wars, no less than the former ones, has produced true comradeship like this? Such sacrifice seems hard and heroic to those who have never felt communal ecstasy. In fact, it is not merely so difficult as many less absolute facts of peacetime in a civilian life. For death becomes a measure of unreal and unbelievable to one who is sharing his life with his companions. Immortality is not something remote or otherworldly, possibly or probably true and real, on the contrary. It becomes a present and self-evident fact. The for you.
0: you. can stop wherever you want to stop. I'm running out of steam. You're running out of steam? <laughs> okay.
4: <laughs> Sorry.
0: So there you go. Um, I thought it was so interesting to hear those pieces together, having you know, engaged with them separately, you know, the way that we had um, in class. I mean, it, Tell a whole different sort of story together, and you guys were awesome. I don't know if you have any questions or if there's anything you want to know, otherwise, we've done our thing. Okay. I walked in a minute late, so I may have missed your explanation of this. But how did you come to pick these particular pieces? Um, did, did you cover that already? But I don't know. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, these are uh, students um, who all took a class together last quarter um, as part of the Veterans Learning Community. It's a class uh, for veteran and military students oh. only. It um, comes studies three hundred eight on the experiences of war. So they were reading excerpts from things that we worked with in class. Um, in some cases either favorite passages or certainly uh, favorite themes uh, that uh, sort of became uh, central to our class uh, discussions. Yeah? Can I have another sure. question? Sure. Your name was Josh. James. James, I'm sorry. Uh, why, were you, you, uh, why were you on the ground doing convoys as an air force officer? Because I wasn't a soldier. I was enlisted uh, because
3: I was security police, security forces. So my unit was actually one of the very first uh, SF units in Iraq when the war started, uh, and we worked trained prior to uh, just because of my unit's objectives, what we were doing. Uh, we worked trained with the army and the marines, and we kind of had a joint task force. Uh, going on so that's why I participated in those activities.
0: Yeah. All right, well thank you. Thank, thank, you. You. All right. thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you.